think that's working. Hello there. I'm Jonathan. Um, I've been on the staff at St Andrews for uh, two and a bit years, uh, but been at the church for about 15, uh, moving to Oxford to, to study, and never really left. I'm, I'm one of those people who um, is not really sure when they became a Christian. There were quite a lot of people like that. Now, I went to church from quite a young age, but as they say, uh, going to uh, sit in McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger, and so going to church doesn't make you a Christian. But I do now know that I am a Christian now, which is the important bit. The Bible tells us that being a Christian is to become a new person, a new person and to have a new life. Our first quote Those who become Christians become new persons. They are not the same anymore, for the old has gone. A new life has begun. Well, it's a bit like being born again. That's another way that the Bible speaks about becoming a Christian. Being born again. When we receive Christ, we become a child of God. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There aren't very many people who remember their birthday. Now, I, I don't mean the annual reminder of when they were born. I'm talking about their actual birthday. I might be proven wrong here. But not very many people actually remember emerging from their mother's womb and taking their first few breaths. No, not here. But you do know that you're alive, which is the main thing. And so it is with Christians. Some people are able to look back at that point when they became a Christian, when they were born, born again, if you like. Look to the very day and the very hour when it all started for them. But for many others, they're uncertain of, of when exactly that happened. It's a bit like, I suppose, if you were on a uh, long-distance train crossing Europe. Now, if you're asleep, um, your head lolling to the side, you know, sort of bouncing off the window as it sort of goes over the tracks, you might not notice when you've passed from France into Germany. But you'd wake up and you'd realise that you were in another country. If you were awake and alert and checking the signs and noticing the language change, you'd probably notice the point when you did cross the border. But there would be no difference between those two people. You'd both be in Germany, whereas you used to be in France. But you just might not be aware of the time it happened. And so it is with Christians. Many people are uncertain about when they became Christians or not. But what they shouldn't be uncertain about is whether they are a Christian or not. They shouldn't be about uncertain about whether they have eternal life. As the Apostle John says in his letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. There's a certainty that he wants his readers to have. Now, it might seem rather presumptuous to say that you know that you have eternal life. Doesn't that seem a bit presumptuous? But as with any good parent, God wants us to be confident that we are his beloved children. And that he has amazing things in store for us because he loves us, including eternal life. He wants us to be confident. And our assurance of our relationship with God and of eternal life stands firmly on the activity on all three members of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rather like this stand, I won't pick it up, otherwise I'll drop the um, recording device, but if you could see, this has got three feet, nice and secure, like or a camera tripod. 
There are three legs that support our assurance that we are children of God and that we have eternal life. The first of those legs is the word of God. The promise which the Father gives in the Bible, the word of God. Secondly, it's the work of Jesus, which we were hearing about last week. Remember, Michael was telling us about why Jesus had to die. The sacrifice of the Son on the cross, the work of Jesus. And thirdly, the witness of the Spirit. The assurance that God's Spirit gives to us. The word of God, the work of Jesus, and the witness of the Spirit. Now, this week is is half-term holiday. For those of you who are studying at university, uh, you don't get half-terms. Most people in working life don't get half-terms, but school children do. And so my wife, Dawn, and our four children have uh, half-term. And they're all off somewhere else. They've gone up to Stockport to stay with my uh, wife's family um, while I stay in Oxford to work. No. Okay, no surprise. No, 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 no. I'm not looking for surprise. But it's a bit weird. It's a bit weird going home to a quiet house when uh, I'm used to you know sort of four children bouncing off the walls and bouncing off each other. Um, it's a bit strange. And even though they've only been gone less than 48 hours, I, f- I feel I'm sort of reverting slightly to bachelor ways. <laughs> baked beans on toast, takeaways, not, make, not making the bed. I'm not going to go into too much more detail. Um, but the truth is, I'm not a bachelor. I am married. So um, even if I might not feel like I'm married, uh, or I might not behave like I'm married, I am married. Well, how do I know that I'm married? Well, the ring is a little bit of a giveaway uh, for those with um, keen eyesight. But what clinches it, really, is my marriage certificate. This is a copy of my marriage certificate, and you can see how old we were when we got married and so on, if you're interested. Um, But that is what testifies to my marriage being an objective reality. It's something recognised in law. You know, we are, according to the law of the land, we're married. So whether I feel like I'm married or not, the certificate tells me that I am. It clinches it. If we were to rely on our feelings, uh, we'd never really be sure about anything. Our feelings fluctuate day to day. I don't know about you, but I assume that's true for most people. Whether you, you know, how much sleep you've had, uh, what else is going on in your life, maybe even what you've eaten. But our feelings fluctuate, they're changeable, and they can even be deceptive. But there are some objective realities, such as the promises of God found in the Bible, which do not change and are totally reliable. So this is our first point. The first leg, if you like, of that tripod the word of God, the first of those legs assuring us of our relationship with, with God. Now, there are many great promises in the Bible, and, um, of course, we've only got limited time, so I'm only going to highlight three of them. Um, a bit of a race through here, but firm promises that we can just hold on to, like that, uh, the objective reality on that certificate. But in the last book of the Bible, in a vision, the Apostle John uh, sees Jesus speaking to different churches and one of those churches is the church in Laodicea and to that church he says here I am I stand at the door and knock if anyone anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with them and they with me now there are many different ways of starting about uh, speaking about starting the Christian life the new life of Christian faith, such as becoming a Christian or or giving your life to Christ. 
But the image of opening a door to Jesus and letting him into your life is, is a striking and powerful one, I think. I don't know if you visited Keble College just up the road. There is um, there's a very famous painting by an artist called Holman Hunt called The Light of the World. There are actually three copies, and Keble has one of them. But in this painting, Jesus, the light of the world, stands at a door. It's slightly faint, isn't it? Stands at a door overgrown with ivy and weeds, you can see up here, which represents the door to the life of someone who hasn't let him in to their life. And Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, waiting for a response. He wants to come in and be part of that person's life. I stand at the door and knock. Apparently someone once said to Holman Hunt, probably uh, you know, thinking they got one up on him, you know, you, you've made a mistake in, in this picture. I don't know if any of you have spotted what he might have spotted. He said, there's, there's no handle on the door. He probably thought that you know, Holman Hunt was just going to collapse in floods of tears and I don't know, have them shredded or something. But, but Holman Hunt said, no, that's deliberate. There is a handle, but it's on the inside of the door. There is only one handle, it's on the inside. The reason for that is because it's we that have to open the door to Jesus. Jesus won't force his way in like some kind of, I don't know, who's that guy on 24? He goes around sort of Jack Bauer. Yeah. I mean, he's not, he's not going to kick the door down. He's asking us to open. And if we do open the door, he promises, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. And eating is a sign of friendship and closeness. So Jesus offers that to all those who will open their doors, the door of their life to him. And once we have invited Jesus to come in, he promises that he will never leave us. That's the second of the promises we want to look at. He says to his disciples, I am with you always. Now, we might not always be in direct conversation with Jesus, but he will always be there. It's a bit like if you're perhaps studying in the same room as someone else. Well, you might not be chatting all the time. Well, you might be, I suppose, depending. But even if you're not chatting, you're aware of the other person being there. You're aware of their presence. And it's perhaps a bit like that with Jesus. He's always with us, even if we're not so, you know, consciously aware of it or in direct conversation. He's always with us. And the third great related promise in the Bible that I want to draw our attention to is one in which Jesus says of his followers, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. Well, in, in the New Testament, the eternal life is a quality of life that comes from living in a relationship with God, God the eternal one, of course, through Jesus Christ, and which starts now and goes into eternity. And that assurance of eternal life is based on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So our assurance of eternal life is based on the resurrection. The resurrection has implications throughout the Christian faith, but thinking about three aspects, past, present and future. The resurrection demonstrated that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross was effective. The, the resurrection of Jesus shows us that now, today, Jesus is with us. Jesus is alive and he, has, he brings his power with him and provides us with fullness of life in the present. And the resurrection of Jesus shows us that there is life beyond this life. That this life isn't all there is, as Jesus showed for himself, passing through death and out the other side. There is life beyond the grave. The Bible says that one day Jesus will return to earth to establish a new heaven and a new earth. And those who are in Christ will go to be with the Lord forever. There will be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. 
will be given resurrection bodies, glorious, pain-free resurrection bodies. And we will have, be transformed into the moral likeness of Jesus. No one can imagine what it's going to be like. But uh, as C.S. Lewis, everyone always quotes C.S. Lewis, but he's such a brilliant author, puts it in one of his Narnia books. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one. Chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We don't know what that'll be like, but we just get hints of it in the Bible. So we can be confident that we have eternal life because of the word of God, the first of the three legs that assure us of our relationship with God. The second of those three legs is the work of Jesus. And just as my marriage certificate doesn't just appear out of thin air and not relate to anything else, so my marriage to Dawn is based on one day in June, 14 years ago, at this very church, an objective historical event, our wedding. Don't we look young? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Then similarly... Similarly, our relationship with God... Maybe that ought to come down. I might be distracting. Our relationship with God is based on an objective historical event. Jesus' work on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross enables God to give us the free gift of eternal life. I'm not confident that I have eternal life because of how good I am or because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. It would be arrogant to say I have eternal life because of anything to do with me. But it's not arrogant because it's because of what Jesus has done. As Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God. It's a gift. How is it arrogant to receive a gift? Eternal life is a gift. We don't earn it. We accept it with gratitude. We receive the gift of eternal life by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance means changing our minds. Literally turning our back on everything that we know to be wrong. It means stopping in our tracks and not following our own selfish ways, but turning around to follow Jesus instead. It's a bit like laying down something already in your hands. Perhaps imagine you know, carrying offensive weapons laying those down, weapons that could be used against other people and against yourself. To repent means to lay those things down and with your empty hands to then take hold of what Jesus has to offer. Repentance is laying it down, faith is taking it up. Repentance is to turn away from sin. Faith is to turn towards Jesus. Now faith, faith, I think you know, people think of faith as some sort of impossible thing to understand, a religious term which is just divorced from reality. But it's not that at all. Faith and trust and belief, they're all, they're all the same word in the Greek. They are something which we do constantly, every day in our lives. Our whole lives are characterised by faith and trust. Um, I don't know about you, but I drove here today. And driving along the road, cars pass the other way, and you trust that those drivers are not going to deliberately swerve into you. Um, I need a haircut. 
when I go to the barber, I'm going to assume, I'm going to trust that he's going to cut my hair and not cut anything else. <laughs> when we go to the supermarket, we trust that they're not going to poison us with what they sell us. When you sit on these rather flimsy plastic blue chairs, you trust that they're going to take your weight. Good luck to you. But we trust, we exercise faith throughout our lives. It's not some mysterious religious thing. It's the way we live. Salvation requires us to have trust, to have faith in Jesus. It doesn't just happen to us. To have faith is to put your money where your mouth is. To have faith in Jesus is to lean your whole weight on Jesus, like you're putting it all on those chairs. The whole weight on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I've got a short cartoon clip which, which is, uh, illustrates really nicely what it means to have faith. Enjoy. Two minutes. Jean-Francois Rabelais, better known as Blondine, was a famous tightrope walker and acrobat. He's perhaps best known for his many crossings of the tightrope, 1,100 feet in length, suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls in the USA. His act would be watched by large crowds and begin with a relatively simple crossing using a balancing rod. Then he would throw away the pole and a person's So faith, faith isn't just an intellectual thing, you know, sort of screwing your head up really tight and believing certain things. It's not sort of going down a tick list of intellectual propositions. Faith is taking an active step of putting our trust in Jesus. It's about putting our money, money where our mouth is, which the Duke of Newcastle, whatever he was, wasn't prepared to do. Repentance and faith are the means by which we accept that free gift. Now, salvation is not our work. It's God's work. And it's motivated by God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, because of his love for us, saw the mess that we were in and gave his only son to die for us. 
and as a result of that death, everlasting life is offered to all who believe. Do you remember what was, uh, Michael was saying last time about that barrier that separated us from God? I don't have a little book here. But on the cross, Jesus took that barrier away, the barrier that was caused by our sin, our iniquity, by our wrongdoing that blocks us off from a relationship with God. <coughs> That's why on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was because Jesus was cut off from God, because he was taking our sins. It wasn't his sin that he was bearing, it was ours. And because our guilt can be taken away, we will never be condemned. As Paul puts it, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the second reason why we can be sure we have eternal life, because of what Jesus achieved for us on the cross. God's word Jesus' work. And on to the third and final point, the witness of the Spirit. Now, if you were to ask me how I knew I was married, I could point to my wedding certificate. I could show you photos of my wedding day. But I'd probably point out my wife, if she wasn't in Stockport. I'd try to introduce you to her. I'd refer back to our experience of 14 years of marriage and to our children, the fruit of that marriage, if you like. And it's similar when someone becomes a Christian. When you become a Christian, it's not just some sort of abstract change of state, you know, some, some legal sort of exchange in the back rooms of heaven. It's a new life. There's an experience. It's the beginning of a relationship. And when you become a Christian, you receive God's spirit. God's Holy Spirit comes to live within you. The Holy Spirit is active in all sorts of ways, but there are two ways in particular that God's Spirit enables us to be sure of our relationship with God. He changes our character and our relationship, our relationships with others, and he convinces us that we are God's children. He changes us and he convinces us. The Holy Spirit is also known as the Spirit of Jesus, and he produces the character of Jesus in us. This is referred to in the Bible as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruits of the Spirit, what Jesus is like. And as Christians are changed by God's Spirit, they become, they have more and more of these things in their lives. Isn't that wonderful? And, of course, a lot of these things take time. Some things will be uh, more obvious quicker than others, and others thing, other things take a long time. But there will also be changes in our relationships our relationships with others. Often people say when they become a Christian, they start to notice other people around them. Maybe passing people in the street or on the bus or the train or whatever, they just start to notice people's faces and start to care about people. I've, I felt that when I became a Christian, when it, or at least when I started taking it more seriously, when it became more real to me at university. I've heard other people say that. And it also changes our relationship, of course, with God and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. The name Jesus to many people is, is off-putting and they hear the name Jesus and they run. But Christians will find that the name Jesus means something completely different to them. It, has, it triggers an entire new emotional reaction in them. Just the very name of Jesus. God's Spirit changes us. And also God's Spirit convinces us. He witnesses to our relationship with God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, that experience is different for everyone and is difficult to put into words. Some people speak in terms of having peace or having joy or 
just knowing. For others, this experience is much more up and down, affected by all the other things going on in life. Um, But even when we don't feel close to God, we can rely on those other legs of that tripod, those sure promises of God and the objective historical reality of the cross and the resurrection. But that's the third leg of the tripod. And so it's because of all three ways, the word of God, the work of Jesus, and the witness of the Spirit, that those who believe in Jesus can be assured, can be sure that they're children of God and that they have eternal life. So it's not arrogant to be sure. It's not based on us at all. It's based on what God has promised, what Jesus died to achieve, and what the work of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. It's one of the privileges of being, of being a child of God that we can be absolutely confident of our relationship with our loving Father. We can know his forgiveness and be sure that we will have eternal life. If you're unsure whether or not you're a Christian, whether you've taken that step of faith or jumped into that wheelbarrow or whatever it is that opened that door, whatever image speaks to you, if you're unsure about that, then perhaps you'd like to pray a prayer now of commitment. There's a way it's very straightforward to ask Jesus to come into our lives. He says, I stand at the door and knock. We need to open our lives to him. And he promises to come in if we do that. So I'm just going to close the prayer. If it's right for you, it might not be, of course. You might be still exploring and you're not ready to commit. Maybe you've said this prayer before and you want to reiterate it. Then pray pray along. But there's no pressure. It's between you and God, of course. But I'm going to pray. Pray with me if you want to. Heavenly Father, I am sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. I'm sorry, Lord, that I've put myself first and that I've not treated you as Lord. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything that I know to be wrong. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. To die so that I could be forgiven and set free. From now on, I want to follow Jesus and obey him as my Lord. Thank you that you now offer me this gift of forgiveness and your spirit. I receive that gift, that gift freely given. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.